Beth handed me a sheet of paper. It was something that she had planned on reading at the mother-daughter banquet the other night, but she said, uh, Beth Salisbury had everybody in stitches so much that she decided not to do it. So I thought I'd steal it this morning and share a few things with you today. Now, I always have to give this little caveat because you are looking at the world's worst joke teller that has ever lived. I have to tell people that this is supposed to be funny or you'll just sit there. <laughs> there, see, now we're practicing. That's good. That's good. This is not my jokes anyway, so if it's not funny, it's not my fault. But nonetheless, this person wrote this, uh, this sheet down of all the things that his mother had taught him. Well, I assume it was a him because I can relate, but anyway, let me share just a few of these with you, because I thought they were pretty good. He said, you know, my mother taught me to appreciate a job well done. She said, if you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. <laughs> he said, my mother taught me religion. You better pray that will come out of the carpet. <laughs> and time travel. She taught me about time travel when she said, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. You relate to some of these? My mother taught me logic because I said so, that's why. I like that one. I think I might have used that one as a father. She taught me more logic when she said, if you fall out of that swing and break your neck, you're not going to the store with me. I like that one. She taught me foresight, and I think we all had this lesson, make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. And this one. I think I used this one, my kids can attest. My mother taught me irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. Right. See what else we got here, there's a couple others. Josh will like this one. Only he'll remember his father rather than his mother. But. My mother taught me about stamina. You'll sit there until that spinach is gone. Or in your case, tomatoes. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. If I told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. My mother taught me the circle of life. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait until we get home. And then she taught me about receiving. You are going to get it when you get home. She taught me about humor. I like this one. My mother never said this to me, but I thought this was humorous. My mother taught me about humor. When that lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't come running to me. <laughs> my mother taught me wisdom. When you get to be my age, you'll understand. And then the favorite. We all had this one. My mother taught me about justice. One day, you'll have kids. And they hope, I hope they turn out just like you. We all recognize that one, don't we? Well, happy Mother's Day, moms. We do want to honor you today, and I hope that so far uh, that this has been a good and blessed day and you have felt honored because we do want to honor you. You know, it seems to be common in America today that we set aside days to do things that we ought to do all the time. Have you noticed that? I saw a tweet the other day. I like to follow Twitter, and I saw a tweet that said, Mother's Day is every day, enough said. And I like that because it's true. But, nonetheless, uh, we, we tend to set aside days to do things because we are, as I mentioned a minute ago, forgetful people. After all, the Word of God does not say honor your father and mother one day a year. It doesn't say that. It says honor your father and mother. And the implication, the, I think the clear implication is it should be an everyday 
all the time thing. But there's value in setting aside a day to remind us because we are forgetful people, and so we have done that today. There's going to be uh, a little gift for you ladies as you leave this morning. Make sure that you get one of those. And uh, we just want this day uh, to be uh, as much as possible about you. There are all kinds of things that we do on Mother's Day, don't we? We send Mother's Day cards. We invite moms over for dinner or we take them out to dinner. We give gifts. We even go to church. You know, uh, from some sources I've read, uh, the, the number three day of church attendance in America is Mother's Day, right behind Easter and Christmas. I don't know if that's true or not, but a lot of people will set aside Mother's Day to go to church. And of course, then there's always the Mother's Day sermon. Preachers are expected to preach something about mothers on Mother's Day. It's become kind of a tradition. And so I, I wondered as I worked through these thoughts in my brain, what should we talk about today on Mother's Day? There are a lot of interesting examples in the Bible. I asked Phil for a few this week. He shared a couple with me. But there are a lot of interesting examples of motherhood in the Bible. I mean, we could talk this morning about Eve, could we not? I mean, wouldn't that be the first mother that would come to mind? The Bible says she was the mother of all living. We could talk about Sarah, Sarah, who was the mother of the, the, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, the, the children of Israel. We could talk about Hannah, the mother of Samuel the prophet. You remember the story of Hannah in the Old Testament, how she prayed? So much we could learn from Hannah. That'd be a good thing to talk about. We could talk about Joshabed this morning. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but you know who Joshabed was? The mother of Moses, who had him for such a short period of time. And yet still managed to instill within his heart a love for the things of God and the people of God. At least a little bit so that it affected him later in life. What an example Joshua would be. We we could talk this morning about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, or Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, obviously we could talk about her. And last, actually last year we did talk about Mary on Mother's Day. We could talk about uh, Lois and Eunice mother and grandmother of Timothy. I think we talked about them a couple years ago, how they had such influence on that young man. Well, but even though the Bible has much to say on the topic of mothers and many, 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 many examples of good mothers we could choose from this morning, I want to talk about two mothers that probably would not meet your list any way you tried to look at it. I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. And this morning I want to talk to you about some lessons from lousy mothers. And and I don't know if these two were really lousy mothers. Uh, It's very difficult to say, uh, but it was an interesting title. Lessons from Lousy Mothers. Let's begin reading 1 Kings chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter, Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. 
You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servants an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened, the third day after I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house, except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night, because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my lord, Give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. We just concluded our first session in the Leadership Training Institute this past Wednesday night, or a couple of Wednesday nights ago, and Practical Christian Living 101 is now in the can. Hopefully it was helpful to those who attended. Uh, we're going to be starting up another class here very, very shortly, in just a couple of weeks, and it's going to be on the subject of hermeneutics and homiletics. Hermeneutics is the science or the art or science of interpretation of the Bible, and homiletics is the Art or science, I would say, the presentation of the Bible, how to develop a lesson, how to preach, how to teach the Word of God. And hermeneutics is one of my favorite subjects. I just love it. And all believers can 
could uh, benefit from thinking about how do you interpret the Bible. But one of the very first lessons that we will learn as we get into that particular topic is that you can't make application from a passage of Scripture until you know what that passage of Scripture means. You cannot apply a passage until you have first interpreted a passage. And so we have to look at this passage this morning and recognize that the thing that I want to talk to you about is not what this passage is about. This passage is really not about these two women, even though we're going to talk about them in just a moment. This passage, we have to make sure we understand, is about Solomon. You saw that, right? The whole passage is about Solomon, the king. It's about his marvelous prayer, his selfless prayer, and God's answer to it in verses 6 through 9. It's about God's demonstration, his first demonstration of his answer to that prayer. The amazing example of the wisdom of Solomon that we read in these two women. Uh, it's all about God's answer to prayer as he showed his great wisdom in dealing with what was truly an impossible situation. God said in verse number 12 that no one would ever be as wise as Solomon. And Solomon went on to fulfill that. He wrote much of the book of Proverbs. Tremendous wisdom flowed from this man. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, he, he, he was an example. He was an example of the wisdom of God. But this right here, I, I imagine if you ever ask anybody, what was an example of the wisdom of Solomon? This is the passage that people would turn to. This is the thing that people remember. Even lost people talk about this illustration of wisdom that God showed through Solomon. So I want to make sure we understand that's what the passage is about. But now that we understand that, I, I don't want to talk about Solomon this morning. I want to talk about those two ladies. I want to talk about these two women. Because I believe that even though Solomon is the main theme of the passage, these other two people have something really, really important to say to us this morning. They were mothers, and it is Mother's Day. We might say that they were lousy mothers. I don't know. They certainly had made a mess of their lives, had they not? They certainly were not the kind of people that we would hold up as examples. And I do not mean to do that this morning, at least not as, not as examples of motherhood. But I do believe that they have something to teach us. Something to teach mothers. I think they have something to teach all of us. All of us this morning. And I think really it's more about the human condition in general than it is about motherhood. Because these, these moms, I think, teach us two very important things. Number one, they teach us that they, like the rest of us, were imperfect people. That's pretty clear, isn't it? They were imperfect people. But they also teach us that the answer to that imperfection was in going to the king. Going to the king. So let's notice those two things this morning. And I'll try to be brief today. I know you've got Mother's Day dinners to go to. They, like the rest of us, were imperfect people. Now, clearly the Bible says here that both of these women were harlots. We would use the word prostitute in our terminology today. Harlotry, as far as I can see from the study of Scripture, is nowhere specifically outlawed in the Bible. In other words, there is no thou shalt not be a harlot statement that we can go to. But clearly it is outlawed when we look at the commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery. And clearly it is outlawed when we see the fact that there all throughout scripture there's teachings about avoiding fornication. We've been, we've been struggling through some of that in our study of 1 Corinthians. So we know that clearly, however you want to look at it, these two women were living in violation of the law of God. And any time you do that, any time you choose to live outside of the law of God, you're going to make a mess of your life. Would you agree with that? You're going to make a mess of your life. And no doubt the lives of these two women were examples of just that. 
think about it, and we have to just we have to kind of imagine this a little bit because we don't have much detail about these ladies, but we, we do we, we can imagine some of this, can't we? No doubt they paid a tremendous social price for these choices. Wouldn't you agree that that's probably true? No doubt there was an economic cost associated with this. Don't you think it's interesting that they were both living as single women in one home? I think it's because they couldn't afford to do anything else. They probably had uh, quite a difficult lifestyle as far as that, a uh, poverty-stricken lifestyle. Their choice to live as they did, at least in their minds, probably ruined them for life. They probably thought there was no hope. From what I understand, of what I read of the culture of the day, I, I'm sure they were completely ineligible for marriage. I'm sure there was nobody who would have been the slightest bit interested in that. And as a result, there was not much hope of their financial position ever improving because they had messed themselves up. And so my guess is that probably their choice that they had made probably made them feel sometimes like the whole world was against them. I can't help thinking that these women must have been perfectly aware of their failings. They must have been perfectly cognizant of the fact that they were sinners. And that, I think, is the key to understanding these two today. As obvious and open sinners, I believe that they are a picture of all of us. Not just moms. And I'll have to keep throwing out moms so you think this is a Mother's Day sermon. I'll throw that out every once in a while. But it's not just moms. It is moms, but not just moms. They are pictures of all of us, aren't they? The Bible makes it very clear that all of us are sinners and desperately in need of a Savior. I think it was just this past week on Wednesday night we read out of Revelation chapter 2. And we read the words of Jesus where he said, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. It would be good for us to remember that, wouldn't it? It's always good for us to remember that we are all sinners. All of us. Every single one. And so as a result of that, I believe, I believe that these two women are just pictures of all of us. And that you are no better than they, and I am no better than they. Pictures of you and pictures of me. Does that shock you? That you are no better than these two harlots? That I am no better than these two harlots? I hope it does. I hope it shocks us on all of us that to seeing that moms, dads, teens, kids, all of us are lost. All of us are sinners uh, outside of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul said, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Not at all. Are we better than these two harlots? Not at all. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Galatians 3.22 says the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6 says we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You say, preacher, you quote those verses all the time. Yes, I do. And I ain't going to stop until the day the Lord calls me home. Because it's the truth of the word of God. All of us are just like them. Every one of us is lost with a, a, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture of the human condition these two harlots were. What a picture of the all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What a picture of the complete depravity, total lostness, utter lostness of those apart from Christ. Can you see them standing there? Picture them in your mind. Evidence of their poverty and their need clinging to them. Desperation on their faces. Is there a picture of desperation in the Bible any worse than this? Actually, I might be able to think of one, but this is right up there. 
Can you see their need, their pain? They are a picture of me. They are a picture of you. They are a picture of all who are without Christ. Some this morning might say, what in the world has gotten into you, preacher? Why in the world are you preaching a message like this on Mother's Day? We came here today expecting some nice, soft, motherly talk. Why would you talk about depravity and sin and harlotry and things like that? And the reason is because I believe nothing is more important. I believe that nothing I could say to you today is more important than this, and nothing good can ever happen in your life or mine until we get this part straight. I'm convinced every day, more and more every day, that this is the part of the message that is ignored, laughed at, winked at, dismissed in America today. Preacher, have you seen the house I live in? Don't tell me I have need. I have everything I need. Preacher, have you seen my bank account? God's blessing me. Don't tell me I need anything. <laughs> Jesus said one time to the Laodicean church, he said, you say to me that you're rich and and then you can see and you've got everything you need. And he said, I'm telling you, you're blind and poor and naked and destitute. You see, we don't recognize our need. Nothing is more important than this. We do need and we are lost. We, like these two harlots, can't hide what we are before the king. Regardless of whether we see our condition or not, he does. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brother Phil mentioned this morning in Sunday school, and I found it interesting that he did. I'm always amazed at how God works all these pieces of our services together. He mentioned this morning about our heart to see people saved in this place. And it was interesting that that came out, because the Lord has been working in my life lately about that. He's, he's always worked in my life about that. But there has been this, this burden that is just rising more and more in my heart, this burden to see people saved, this burden to do, as Jude said, to pull people out of the fire. We need to see people saved in this place. Jonathan Edwards one time preached a sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've quoted from it before. Jonathan Edwards in that, he said this. He said, unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. He went on to build out that illustration of hell. He went on to build it out as hell was this giant pit and over top of it was a fabric covering. But the covering was rotten and threadbare and filled with holes. And he said, those who are lost walk about on that thing. And it is only the grace of God that keeps them from falling through at any particular moment. I read a biographical sermon that John Piper preached, and he was preaching a biographical sermon about Jonathan Edwards. And in that sermon, he mentioned the fact that, you know, a lot of people really, really, really uh, were upset with Jonathan Edwards that he would preach that. You know, if you read that sermon, that sermon is rough. It's one of the roughest sermons that's ever been written. I, I might even apply the word vicious to that sermon. It was horrendous, his depiction of hell. And John Piper, in his bi biography of this and discussing this, he said, what? Really, would you have had him to do? How would you have had him to say it? The fact is, what is a preacher to do who is confronted with verses like, uh, where is it at here? Psalm chapter 9 and verse number 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget, forget God. How does a preacher honestly and helpfully deal with such truths of, truths of Scripture? There is no nice way to say it. There is no easy way to say it. And the fact that some might be offended and might walk away doesn't change the truth of it. The fact that some might not want to hear it doesn't change the fact that it's there. That it's there. So the fact is, I think one of the things these harlots teach us this morning 
is just that simple truth. Do you see yourself in them? <laughs> that might be a difficult question to ask. Do you see yourself in these two harlots? But I see myself in them. Until I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that was me. That was me. Absolutely desperate. But there's another thing that they teach us here this morning. There's another wonderful lesson. Not only do we see that they are a picture of the imperfection of us all, they are also, I think, of an illustration of the answer because they found help when they went to the king. They found help when they went to the king. Now, now imagine the scenario. You have to think about this scenario. It's almost comical in its impossibility. Two women alone in the house, both with newborn children, both go to bed one night. One overlays her child and smothers it. She wakes up. She discovers with horror her situation. She swaps out her dead child for the living child of the other woman and goes back to sleep. There are no witnesses. The Bible is clear about that. There were no witnesses in the house. There was only the word of one harlot against the other. Think about this. Both of these women were desperate Obviously, one was desperate enough to perpetrate such a crime. The other was desperate because she had been the victim of such a crime. Just desperate, desperate. Both were desperate of the loss of their child. Both had lost the child. This was a terrible, horrible, hopeless situation. Who in the world could help in a situation like this? Nobody except the king. Only the king. First, First Kings chapter 3 and verse 16. I've just been fixated on that. On that verse this week, as I thought about this, now two women who were harlots came to the king. That was their only answer. That was their only hope. Go to the king. Go to the king. Solomon in this passage is a picture of our Savior, is he not? He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer for all problems falls falls from the king. The fix for all brokenness is found in the king. He and he alone heals all our diseases, cures all our infirmities, mends all our brokenness, and saves all our lostness. Songwriter said, Emmanuel, the promised king, the baby who made angels sing. Son of man who walked with us, healing, breathing in our dust. The author of all history, the answer to all mysteries. The Lamb of God who rolled away the stone in front of every grave. We need to go to the king. We need to go to the king. You know, there are all kinds of illustrations of this in the Bible. We could go to the New Testament and we could look at the story of the woman who had an issue of blood. You remember that story in the New Testament? The Bible says that she had some sort of internal hemorrhaging situation going on there. And she had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. And they had not been able to help her. Interestingly, one of the Gospels says they'd not only not been able to help her, uh, they'd actually been made They'd actually made her worse. The doctors made her worse. She spent all her money on it. Luke, the physician, leaves that little particular part out. I always find the hubris. But the other Gospels do say she was just getting worse and worse. And one day she thought to herself, I have no other choice. There's nobody can help me. I've tried every doctor. I've spent every penny. There's only one place to go. And so she snuck up behind Jesus in the crowd and reached out and just touched the hem of his garment. She went to the king. She was healed just like that. I I think of the thief on the cross. Is there a picture anywhere in the Bible of someone who has so come to the end of himself, so come to the end of his choices, so come to the end of his chances, so come to the end of his life? Here he was, hanging on the cross. There was no coming down. He was in the process of dying while this was going on. He thought to himself, what shall I do? And he turned and looked to the king. And Jesus said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Peter So many illustrations from the life of Peter. Peter had betrayed the Lord. You remember the story? The rooster had crowed. Peter had denied him three times. Peter had betrayed him. He had turned his back on him. And as a result of that, he had gone back to his life of fishing at the end. And one day as he was in his fishing boat with some others, he looked out on the shore and there was the king 
standing on the shore, beckoning to him. And I love the picture. The apostle Peter just leaped into the water and swam to the shore because he had to get to the king. He had to get to the king. Another time in the life of Peter, Peter was out in a boat and there was a big storm. It was in the middle of the night and all of a sudden Jesus came walking by. You remember the story. Jesus was walking on the water. And uh, they were shocked and amazed at that, of course. But Jesus challenged Peter to get out of the boat and walk toward him on the water. We don't talk about that very much, but that's an amazing thing. Peter did walk on the water. That's pretty amazing uh, when you think about it. But Peter was like me and like most of us. He is weak in his faith. And the minute he got out on the water and he started looking around, he, he started to fail. He started to mess up and he started to sink. And he did the only thing at that moment that anybody could do in such a desperate situation. He said, Lord, save me. And the Bible says immediately Jesus reached forth his hand. He went to the king. He went to the king. Listen, not only are these two harlots this morning pictures of us all in their sin and hopelessness, they're also demonstrations of the only solution to our condition. How we need to go to the king. Think about them. There was no other hope. There was no other way. Who else could have solved their problem? Who else could have rendered judgment? Who else? None. Only the king. And my Bible is clear that there is nobody who can help us other than King Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. They needed to go to the king. And when they went to the king, he solved the problem. Some time ago I shared with you a video it was a video by the late S.M. Lockeridge. He's a preacher from, was a preacher from San Diego, California. He's with the Lord now. Back in 1976, he preached a, a sermon that has become famous called, That's My King. And because I don't believe I can improve on his words remotely this morning, I just want to close with just a little bit of that sermon. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. That's my king. Brother Lockeridge said, My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one 
able to supply all our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. His office His manifold, his promise is sure, his light is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Now two women who were harlots came to the king. Situation hopeless? To the world it might have looked so, but then they took it to the king. I wonder, what's going in your life? What's going on in your life this morning? And whatever it is, have you turned it over to the king? Have you believed, actively, openly believed in the king? Have you called upon King Jesus that you might be saved? Have you cast all your cares upon him, the king? Who cares for you? Not much of a Mother's Day sermon, I imagine. But moms, some of you might not have acted on this. Some of you might never have called upon him. Maybe today ought to be that day. And it would be the best Mother's Day that has ever been. Brother Nick shared with me something that happened this past week. He texted me on Wednesday and said, would you pray? Pray I'm going to be meeting with my 87, right, 87-year-old grandmother tonight. I'm going to try to share the gospel with her. I said, all right, brother. In my little text back to him, we'll pray. I mentioned it in prayer meeting that night. And we were a little down on prayer meeting Wednesday night, but the faithful ones who were here, we prayed. We prayed. Nick texted back and said, in the Cracker Barrel parking lot, my 87-year-old grandmother came to know the king. Hmm. Hallelujah. Another mom, another grandmother who went to the king and is safe forever. Amen. We give an invitation after nearly every service that we do here. You know why we do that? We don't do that just because I like standing in front of you. Frankly, I don't like standing in front of you. That's not why we do that. We do that because it gives you an opportunity to respond. You see, Jesus, King Jesus, is standing with arms outstretched offering this offer of salvation to every single person. But he will not force you. You must say yes. You must respond. And that is why we have this invitation. It's not the only way it can be done, but it is just the way we choose to do it here. And so have you come to the king. We're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to give you that opportunity. Don't walk out of here today not knowing him. 
These harlots went to the king. He solved their problem. And so too can you. Say to him, say to him, whatever it is, whatever mess I've made of my life, I'm turning it over to the king today. I want him to be my king.